everybody. Welcome back to Please Drink Responsibly, a drinker's guide to American history. I'm Lisa Wiley, alcohol historian, beer drinker, and history nerd. I have a correction from my Norwich episode. Sarah Starkey from the headlines portion of the show, the police officer who drove drunk at twice the legal limit, was not Norwich PD. She was a state of Connecticut cop. She was hanging out in Norwich and busted by Norwich PD. Sorry, NPD. The listener who pointed that out gets an official please drink responsibly sticker. As can you. If you can send me proof that I boof something up, you can hit me up on Facebook at Please Drink Responsibly, a drinker's guide to American history. I mean, just to be clear, I'm not an actual scholar. I'm a nerdy storyteller who loves history and booze. So if I made a mistake, I'd love to hear about it. And I'll send you, too, an amazing sticker and record a correction, okay? Okay. Let's learn some stuff. Uh, For our third episode, I'm taking a chance here um, for two reasons. I'm drinking today in Salt Lake City, Utah. I've made it a point to cover smaller towns on this show uh, for time reasons. I like to be under like 30 minutes or so, like one drive to work. And the bigger towns, they have so much going on that I can't get through it all. And also, uh, I'm taking a risk on Salt Lake because there are more crazy drinking laws here than anywhere else that I have ever heard of, at least in the United States. For example, did you know that bartenders uh, from 2010 to 2017 were required to mix drinks behind a screen? Holy hell, this is going to be fun. Bars and beer taverns in Salt Lake are open from 11.30 a.m. to 1 a.m. daily. State-run liquor stores may be open from 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. Monday through Saturday and closed on Sunday. As we speak, Utah is finally relaxing its alcohol laws, so I'm running out of time on some of this. Uh, We're going to start this one before I dive into the founding folks by talking about 3-2 beer, which I learned about when I went to Salt Lake City. It was uh, horrible, um, and it also means I have to get a little bit sciency, at least for me. So most beer in the United States has an alcohol content of up to 4 to 6% alcohol by volume. Some of them going up to like as much as 9. I can tell you about a camping trip where I came across some uh, 9% beer and passed out at the campfire. In Utah, 3-2 beer, just to make it more complicated, is measured alcohol by weight, which is a way more complicated system. So 3-2 beer measured by weight is really around 4% by volume, which is the normal American alcohol measurement system, if you look at the can. And it hurts my brain, that's enough of that. But the point is, in Utah, as of this recording, it is illegal to sell anything uh, higher than a beer, which is around 4% by volume, but 3-2 by weight in any store not run by the state. They consider anything stronger to be liquor. All other regular strength beer can be purchased in the good old state-run store. But up to four by weight or five by volume beer will be available in grocery, convenience stores, beer bars, and restaurants as of November 2019. They're loosening it just a little bit. So cheers. After 86 years. Anyway, it's such a weird system. And why? Because Mormon. (laughs) Let me just rattle through early history here. Because for a historically parched American city, the booze actually takes up a lot of time. Early indigenous tribes were Shoshone, Ute, like Utah, and Paiute tribes. They referred to the Great Salt Lake as Tisapa, or bad water, probably because it's, uh, you know, salt and not suitable for drinking. I can just imagine, like, dude, this water sucks. Bad, bad water, man. 
Anyway, John Fremont from the Sonoma episode, the one with the bear flag revolt, uh, he actually went and surveyed this area for the United States in 1843 and 1844 before moving his shenanigans farther west. Fur trade was really heavy here uh, in early days. The nearby towns of Ogden and Provo are even named after two famous fur traders. Let's just jump real quick into the Mormon stuff, and I'm going to subtitle this section, A Drinker's Guide to the Mormon Religion. <laughs> in 1830, Joseph Smith recorded a third testament to the Christian Holy Bible. He transcribed it from gold plates, which he was sent to find in a vision. It talks about Jesus having preached after the resurrection in America and promising his return after the establishment of a real and true church. And think what you want about this? Hundreds and currently millions of people believe him. So, okay, whatever. He built up followers really quickly. But an enormous percent of Americans across uh, the East basically said, what, what are you talking about? Like, that's blasphemy. And also, what's up with all the wives? And this was tricky business back then in a country which proclaimed religious freedom. No legal action could be taken against them by constitutional law, but Smith and his followers were run out of New York, Ohio, and Missouri. In Missouri, the governor actually threatened extermination of all of them if they didn't leave, which is so crazy. They finally landed in Illinois and were able to build their, their temple. So it was cool for a minute and everybody had a couple secret wives and they did practice uh, polygamy. And they also trained a little Mormon army defense force. Anyway, something uh, happened with Joseph Smith busting up a printer's press or something at a local newspaper there in Illinois, and he got arrested. And while he was in jail, an angry mob beat and shot him. <laughs> so everyone pinned their hopes on Brigham Young. He was uh, an apostle of the church at the time. He had seen, I guess, Fremont's survey of Salt Lake City and had a vision, <laughs> literally for him, um, of a valley ordained by God, far away where he and his people could live in peace. Back to booze for a second. John Smith, before he died, put forth the following doctrine. And I'm, gonna, I'm paraphrasing Doctrine and Covenants 89, 5 through 7 from Joseph Smith's writings. Behold, it is not good. And that's what he said. It is not good. It's only to be used in the taking of sacraments. And even then it should be only wine made at home. And strong drinks are not for your belly. That one is weird. Anyway, that's the Mormon alcohol doctrine. Now we know. In uh, 1846, 10,000 Latter-day Saints headed to Utah. And they, I mean, they had to like basically go well, walk or wagons. Um, they had to stop in winter in Missouri where they built a makeshift winter quarters, but 800 of them died um, from the cold on the journey. And this is a lot of dedication. And I just read more LDS texts than I ever expected I would. But I, I mean, I don't know, man. It seems pretty fun. You live a righteous life and you get to enjoy one of these three levels of heaven. It actually sounds pretty baller. Not that I'm going to convert or anything, but anyway, they, uh, they got there to Salt Lake and they were stoked. It, there's this old story of Brigham Young um, thinking that the great Salt Lake, Salt Lake was the Pacific Ocean. It must be an urban legend though, because he had maps. I can't find any evidence of that story being true. I think someone was just poking fun. But if anyone knows about that legend, let me know. So anyway, hooray. Nobody will bother us here. Let's plant potatoes and build a temple and lay out streets and stuff. And they did in this sort of like arid valley. And they got there just as Utah became the U.S. from Mexico. So Brigham Young is in paradise, right? Expanses of land, multiple wives, crops, religious freedom, sacramental wine, a temple, no black people. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> Apparently that was a big deal. They did bring some slaves, um, but black people were not allowed to worship in the temple. It was the curse of Cain or some shit. Anyway, whatever. It was 1848. The southern slaves haven't even been freed, and they won't be for another 17 years. Apparently no black people in the temple. But also, uh, none of the church members even owned their own land. It all belonged to the church. But only white people were allowed into heaven. Um, politically, Brigham Young does pretty well, though, which is interesting, right? I mean, shocking. He's elected governor and head of the church from among his very diverse constituency of his own damn followers. But anyway, he builds schools and stores and places of worship and encourages everyone to, like, come on over, come to Utah. He'll even pay your way in some cases, unless you're black, of course. But anyway, tons of people immigrated from all over the world, like Europe, the Netherlands. Um, this was still the time of send me your poor, your weak, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. So... People came from all different countries, and many on foot, pushing handcarts full of their belongings, like literally. And the hooch is still off, right? Uh, no, no, not really. 3-2 beer, which is known as uh, small ale, was almost immediately brewed. This was a time in world history where drinking water could be deadly. And the Mormons did distill hard alcohol for medicine, and let's not forget that uh, sacramental wine. U.S. troops and non-Mormons arrived bringing their whiskey, and Brigham and his followers discovered that they really didn't have an objection to providing alcohol to non-believers and tippling occasionally themselves. Because Boo's rules were pretty relaxed in the church then. Because guess why? In 1869, there were 37 Mormon-owned distilleries in Salt Lake City. Brigham Young has himself owned Salt Lake's first saloon. And also by then he had 55 wives. Church members had their hands in distilleries of a Mormon whiskey called Valley Tan. They had their own winery and their own brewery and sold beer in their uh, mercantile stores. It's believed that although LDS church members were discouraged from drinking, remember, behold, it is bad. I mean, like medicinally, who knows? What we do know is that the church was more chill about it in the 1800s. So then the train arrived to Salt Lake, bringing in more people and more diversity. They, uh, a thriving Chinatown. More non-believers arrived, but that's okay. I mean, Mormons still had the majority and had the biggest part of the political landscape. Still do, actually. 62%, uh, I think they say, is Mormon today in Salt Lake. Anyway, political landscape. I love that term. The governor of Salt Lake was, was young himself, and he was head of the church also, which owned all of the land and all of the wealth. But then the church started doing some weird shit, like some sort of mob stuff, I guess killing whoever they wanted and running judges and officials out of town, rejecting a lot of uh, federal law, uh, and the U.S. sent troops to suggest Young step down as governor, and he sent his own troops to meet them. So the Mormons were actually making the United States and the federal government pretty nervous. So the U.S. divides and cuts up the surrounding areas to make Nevada, Colorado, Wyoming. It encroached the surrounding Mormon ter territory, but denied them statehood, Utah, until they could do away with polygamy, which they finally do in 1896. Early Mormon Salt Lake history. You're welcome. Here's a boo story. In 1821, Rachel Ivins was born in New Jersey. Her father owns, owned mills and a distillery. And he apparently died of sunstroke exposure, which is so weird. When she was a little kid, he died. That was all I could find. Distillery, sunstroke exposure. It sounds a bit like he passed out in a field, but A-OK. -okay. 
And I only really feel that way because of what transpires 50 or so years later, but I don't really have the proof. Anyway, she was orphaned uh, four years after her father died when her mom died. And she was moved along with her seven brothers and sisters to different relatives. And these relatives started attending meetings of the Latter-day Saints, as she did she. She wrote a testimony to her conversion, and it's pretty much like, I found joy there. Cool. However, she started to believe that Joseph Smith, the prophet himself, wanted to ask for her hand in plural marriage. If this is the case, we'll never know. We do know that she said she would rather go to hell, a virtuous woman, than to heaven as a whore. That's pretty strong feelings. So in 1844, she bolted from the church, and she was gone for 10 years. In the end, though, I guess she made her peace with plural marriage and rejoined the church. I couldn't find much about what changed her mind, but she was still unmarried when she and some of her relatives literally walked to Salt Lake. When she got there, she was even more fine with it because she became the seventh wife of Jedediah Grant. And Jedediah was a muckety-muck of Brigham Young. Jeddy, as she referred to him, was actually less famous at this time because his brother was an LDS hero. George Grant had been part of this famous rescue party to save a bunch of immigrants stuck in the winter cold. They didn't have any shelter or supplies, so he and his party went out and rescued them. And he was quite famous within the community for being a hero. We know that Rachel's marriage to Jedediah was um, consummated because she bore him one child, a son, and then he died nine days later. Rachel was the last wife of seven, and she was left scrambling in this big house full of wives and children. So the church decided that young George should take on his brother's wives, and some of them married George. Rachel basically had nothing at this point. Imagine being a widowed single mom who owns nothing of her own. So she agrees to marry the brother, George. But by then, poor George, who was a hero and a son of an apostle, was fall down drunk like such a drunk, and after skirmishes with the law and being picked up by police and drunk and brawling, the church released, released all of his wives of their marriages. Rachel was single again, and, and, and her, she was married to George for two years, and he was really boozy the whole time. So Rachel moved with her son from the big house um, to the outskirts of Salt Lake, and she raises him pretty much on her own by taking in boarders and sewing, and she even put him through private school. And you know what? Her son, Hebert, became the head of the whole church, which is pretty cool. But he was the iron fist of temperance and enforcing the doctrine and covenants. Remember, behold, it is bad, from which the Salt Lake took 86 years to recover from. He was the 11th head of the LDS church and a real booze bummer. The church leader who enforced the no alcohol, no like higher levels of heaven doctrine. And he did also create the first welfare programs for women and children, so that's kind of cool. Did you know that the first female Utah state senator was a Mormon? Yep. You guys, the Mormons are politically savvy. Their prophet Joseph Smith even ran for president at one point. There's been a a Mormon in American office since the early 1800s, making the Church of Latter-day Saints about as American, in my opinion, as the Gold Rush and the Emancipation Proclamation and baseball, and they probably make a hell of an apple pie. And nothing is more evidence uh, of a healthy mix of church and state than Salt Lake City and the alcohol laws, since young Hebert made heaven unattainable with hooch. So backing up, Civil War, like California, they had no regiments. They mostly stayed in the West. Temperance went down, as you would expect. There were 600 saloons operating before Prohibition in Utah. 
Utah and the church under Rachel, Rachel's son Heber banned alcohol, and the state banned it even before federal law. Many saloons went underground, but federal agents in Utah seized over 400 distilleries, 332,000 gallons of mash, 25,000 gallons of spirits, 8,000 gallons of malt liquor, and 13,000 gallons of wine between 1825 and, and I'm sorry, 1925 and 1933 during the years of prohibition. But that sounds like pretty much everywhere. Utah repealed prohibition in 1933 with the rest of the United States. But Salt Lake drinking laws were still governmentally Mormon wacky. Uh, they still were for the next 90 years. This is where my job as an alcohol historian gets tough because what happens in Salt Lake from the temperance movement is so involved. I'm going to skip a bunch of history stuff because there were so many crazy laws to, co to cover. So here we go. Alcohol after prohibition could only be purchased in state stores. Still true to this day. Like many places, uh, but wait, it gets weirder. You couldn't go out for a drink. You had to bring your own liquor. So restaurants and bars would take your brown bag and have you like set you up with ice and mixers and they would pour your drink. Some had lockers, so you didn't have to drink the whole bottle in one night because you certainly didn't want an open container in your car. This system proved impractical in uh, 1969, Utah legalized airplane bottles. At least that's what I've always called them, um, 1.75 ounces of alcohol. In the Northeast, they call them nips. In Utah, they call them Barbie bottles. This was their system for about 20 years. In 1990, they installed meters on bottles. No drink was to exceed 1.5 ounces of alcohol, no doubles, ever, making the weakest mixed drinks ever. You, you can't order more than one drink at a time, unless it was a different li liquor. I, I, I heard something about like a side shot, but it couldn't be, you couldn't order like a single vodka and a vodka shot so that you could pour it in, like they were onto you. Um, you, could not eat at a restaurant unless you had an intent to dine. Like literally you were not, they couldn't serve you alcohol unless you were gonna eat. Um, that's bananas. There were no happy hours, no drink specials. You can't buy a keg of beer in Utah. Legal alcohol driving limits are the lowest in the nation. Home brewing was not made legal till 2009. And then my favorite, the Zion Curtain, which states that drinks must be mixed behind a screen so no one can see. Alcoholics can't be tempted, and kids can't get corrupted. This law lasted seven years in recent history till 2017. Now, instead of a partition, restaurants can have a seven-foot distance between the bar and diners where no children are allowed. So Salt Lake City has been fighting hooch ever since because, behold, it is bad. In 2002, for the uh, Winter Olympics in Salt Lake, uh, Olympic logo emblazoned flasks were given out as sort of a tongue-in-cheek souvenir. Okay, I feel like I'm running out of time. I'm gonna leave you with one more drunk daddy story. <laughs> Just, there's so many drunk daddies in history. Um, in Salt Lake City in 1926, a, a child named Neil Cassidy was born and his mom died and his dad was a what? Alcoholic. So he raises himself basically and was in and out of trouble uh, in reform school. Little Neil grew up to be in the beat generation. And he was a major figure in works by Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac, and they were dropping acid all over America. In fact, he and Ginsberg were in a romantic relationship. I'll give you a quote by Cassidy. Sometimes I sits and thinks. Sometimes I sits and drinks. 
but mostly I just sits. I can relate to that one. Neil died of a drug overdose at the age of 42. Okay, drunken dummies from the Salt Lake City headlines. Francesca Farias Swanson, found walking barefoot in Salt Lake, Salt Lake City, was drunk on mouthwashed. Mouthwash and asked the police if she could just smoke one more bowl of marijuana before being taken to jail. In 2019, Brother Taylor of Salt Lake City was reported to the newspaper as being as drunk as he could possibly be, and his wife was compelled to drive him home in the wagon. The saint in question lying flat in the box with his feet dangling over the end. That happened in 1879. Tim Crowley of Salt Lake City found himself too drunk to rescue a baby bird he found. The quick-thinking Crowley ordered an Uber. The driver was happy to assist for the regular fare. 2018. Frank Gilmore, after a 10-day bender, found himself suing his bride of 11 days for inveiling him into a state of holy matrimony while he was mentally and physically incapable of rationally exerting his own power. After taking off with his $1,300 savings, Mr. Gilmore was still ordered to pay $30 a month in alimony until the matter is settled in court. That happened in 1913. Okay, this is a joke I found uh, in a Salt Lake newspaper. A prohibition officer promises $10 to anyone with information about a private still. Coming across a tolerably, tolerably drunk Irishman, is what the paper said, with the $10 offer. Our Irishman leads the officers to a nearby field where military men in dress uniform were marching. And Patty says, see that red-headed man there marching? He's my brother. Been in the service for 12 years. He's supposed to be a corporal by now, but he's a private still. <laughs> Stupid. If you or anyone you know has a drinking problem, reach out. I'll, I'll try to help with resources if I can. Our theme song is by Hank FMAO. If you'd like to hear more, he's on SoundCloud. See you next time, and until then, please drink responsibly.